Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, reporter Sean Galanka and Humberto Sanchez chat with me about the results of a poll that the Indie conducted alongside polling firm OH Predictive Insights. The poll covered the upcoming election, and we talked about the race for the governor's seat, the race for the Senate, and how voters feel heading into the midterm election. After that, assistant editor Michelle Rendells comes on the show to talk about a staffing crisis in Nevada prisons, what it means for those prisons, solutions that have been proposed, and how it's affecting inmates and current prison staff. At the end of the show, reporter Daniel Rothberg recaps the latest developments about Thacker Pass, an area in rural Nevada that is the proposed site of a controversial lithium mine. Daniel explains why some local ranchers, tribal members, and activists have been opposing the mine for over a year. In January, we ran a poll alongside OH Predictive Insights, a nonpartisan market research and polling firm. The poll looked into voters' preferences for governor, U.S. Senate and House, and a few other races. Reporter Sean Galanka and Humberto Sanchez join me today to talk about what we learned from the poll regarding the governor's race and the race for Catherine Cortez Masto's Senate seat. Um, So to start off, I wanted to know the broad overview of these two races. Who's running for governor in Nevada right now and who's running for Senate? We'll start with governor. So go ahead, Sean. Yeah, well, in the governor's race, obviously, we have the the incumbent Democrat, Steve Sisolak, is, is running, of course, for re-election. And then on the other side of things, we have a pretty full Republican field. We have Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo, former U.S. Senator Dean Heller, Las Vegas City Councilwoman Michelle Fior, Reno Attorney Joey Gilbert, and it, it kind of goes on from there. There's a few other candidates, but those are some of the, the main ones in the race. And then what about for Catherine Cortez Masto's seat? In the Senate, obviously, she's seeking re-election for, for her seat, and she's being challenged by former Attorney General Adam Laxalt, who's a Republican, and also in the Republican camp is a military veteran, Sam Brown. He's also seeking uh, to challenge her. So when we look at these two races, who's ahead in both of them? Obviously, for the Democrats, we just have an incumbent, but for the Republican side, there's kind of this primary that's going to be happening. So again, we'll start with the governor. Who's leading right now in terms of the numbers from this poll? Yeah, in this poll and even in some other recent polls, we do see that Steve Sisolak does have a lead over his likely Republican opponents. In the last couple of polls that we've covered at the Indy, it's been just Sisolak versus Lombardo and Sisolak versus Heller, as those appear to be his two most likely opponents right now. But those are are slim leads. It was slightly larger in the recent January poll by OH Predictive Insights, but still pretty tight race at, at this point. And for Catherine Cortez Massive. And so she she in the head to head with with Laxalt, she's ahead. Laxalt is her likely opponent. She's she's leading by nine points and and Laxalt is leading his primary challenger, Sam Brown, significantly. And so what is the likelihood of Lombardo getting the nomination compared to compared to Heller? I think it's it's pretty up in the air at this point in the race. Obviously, we're still a little over four months out from the, the Republican primary election in June. This latest polling in January, saw Lombardo with a pretty hefty lead over the field, but that was different from back in September when we saw Heller slightly ahead of Lombardo. But even with both of those polls, there's a large number of Republican voters who are still unsure. And so if those swing to Lombardo or Heller, maybe they take the lead in the polls or they could go to somebody else like Joey Gilbert and we could see a more surprising win in the primary in June. What are some of the most important variables that are going to affect who's going to be coming out ahead? 
In this instance, without a presidential candidate running in this in, on the ballot, uh, this becomes kind of a referendum on how people feel about the president, meaning that uh, his presidential approval rating is really important. And right now in Nevada, he's he's way underwater. He's 52% of registered voters disapprove of the job he's done. So that could be a real drag on Cortez Masto looking forward. I'm going to cut in here really quick with a quote from Mike Noble, who's with OH Predictive Insights, the firm we did the poll with. When we go into these midterm elections, the, the incumbent president's job approval is a leading indicator for what's going to happen down ticket. It's a key factor that we watch in the polling or on the data side. And so Joe Biden right now, with him being kind of in a, in a negative, negative or underwater with his job approval, is that it, it's going to have an impact down ticket, especially for his party, Democrats. Are there any other major issues that like people are focusing on, like immigration, or is there any like kind of hot button issue that like is the the stuff that's happening in Ukraine right now going to have any sort of effect on on the races? Yeah, I'm in this January polling, the economy and jobs were the top thing. I think it was about a third of respondents said that was their their number one issue, and that was followed by I believe healthcare, national security was pretty pretty low down there. I think there are candidates that do like to talk about the the Russia Ukraine issue and and things in in China and the Middle East, but for Nevada voters, that just isn't really front of mind right now. Yeah, the jobs in the economy was huge, and again, looking at how the how the president figures into this, I think thirty three percent of voters said jobs in the economy were their top issue. Looking at this next election, and the president, his favorability rating on those were, were pretty bad. Yeah, and I mean that's obviously a big deal here in Nevada, where we're one of the states that's still suffering the most economically from the COVID nineteen pandemic. Uh, we still have one of the highest unemployment rates in the nation. How have the polls for these two races compared to other polls for these two races? This poll showed that Cortez Masto had a nine point lead, which is a little higher than than the few other polls that have been done. Mike Noble, who uh, is head of OH, we talked to him about that. And he basically said the snapshot right now shows that essentially within the Senate race, that more Democrats said they would vote for Cortez Masto than Republicans said would vote for Laxalt. But he expects that to change as the primary nears and as the general nears. And that difference was about 10 percent between the two of them. Yeah. And in the governor's race, this this poll was a little bit more favorable to Democrats and to Steve Sisolak than what we've seen with some of the past polling. But I, I think it still shows a very tight race, especially given the margin of error with these polls, especially at this point in the election. There's a, ro- a lot of room for change and a, a few point difference doesn't doesn't mean much this far out from a primary in the general. And how do these two races compare to other governor races and other Senate races around the nation right now? This Senate race is is one of the best races in the nation right now. The Nevada Senate race is going to be super competitive, along with races in Arizona, Georgia, and, and New Hampshire. Money's going to pour in from outside in, into this race. That, in part, is because the Senate is currently split 50-50. Democrats have a majority only by virtue of having the presidency with Vice President Kamala Harris being able to cast tie-breaking votes. So the GOP only needs to win one seat to get the majority. And President Biden only won Nevada by two points. So the Republicans really see a path to victory in Nevada. That's it's it's going to be a, a big, big race. I want to talk about methodology here for a second. How many people were in, polled in this poll? How was the poll done? Was it over the phone? Was it online? Was it, was it going up to people on the street? Yeah, so in this poll, we had 755 registered Nevada voters polled. This was done via an 
online opt-in survey, which is kind of one of the main two polling methodologies today, that and calling people via landline, via their phones. There are some slight differences between those two. With with calling people over the phone, you can get a, a list of registered voters from the Secretary of State, see that they're registered with a specific party, whereas with this, this online survey, there's kind of a, a slew of questions before you get into the actual polling that kind of check on your voting history. And so the primary is four months out. What is the likelihood that some of these numbers change between now and then? I think it's very likely that these numbers could could change significantly between now and then. Obviously, we're kind of coming down from high COVID caseloads in Nevada, but the whole climate of the pandemic could could change within the next four months. We don't know what new variant could pop up and cause another surge. We don't know if maybe this thing is kind of roped in under control to some degree. There's still a lot of uncertainty about how how the economy could change in the, the next few months, especially as the uh, the Federal Reserve changes interest rates and, and increases them. And here's Mike Noble again with OH Predictive Insights. Being an incumbent governor right now with this pandemic still going on, no one's safe. And so the numbers, he's, he's in a good position right now. However, a lot can change from now until Election Day. That's absolutely right. They're, they're... I expect them to change. This is just a snapshot of where things are right now. And just looking ahead, the Democrats are going to try to pass their Build Back Better agenda. They're going to try to turn around Biden's numbers by by putting some of those legislative victories on the, on the board if they can. And what does it say that there's so many people that are undecided right now? I just think it's very early. I think people are... are still making up their minds. And I think, and I think right now it's hard for speaking from here, from DC, where I'm just surrounded by the federal government, but I just, people, people just don't really think about the government, I think in, in the real world. And one more time, we're going to hear from Mike. Look at the current national map. Democrats have all three branches of power. They have the executive, they have the upper chamber, they have the lower chamber. Once you've had, once you all have all three, you're not really motivated, Right. And the boogeyman, Donald Trump, has been kind of removed. However, that was one thing that unified a very diverse coalition. So you're seeing that Republicans are more motivated than Democrats right now. And then the issue sets and where Biden's approval and with inflation is that a lot of this election, which is interesting, may be more about the actual overall political environment than what's actually some of the things that happen on the ground. And there's a lot of time for for those voters to make up their mind, time for them to be influenced. Obviously, there's still a lot of time for money to be spent on on advertising and and the like. So we'll see how how the fundraising plays a role over the next few months as well. Well, and then that's my last question here is fundraising numbers that just came out recently in the last couple of weeks. Do they tell us anything about the Senate and governor's race at the moment? I think they still kind of point to Democrats. The incumbent Democrats have a bit of an advantage. Sisolak, he, he comes into the, the start of 2022 with a big cash on hand advantage. And, you know, similarly in the Republican field, we see Lombardo has a pretty large fundraising advantage over others in, in that field. So I think it, it's kind of reflective of what, of what we saw in the polling. Yeah, I think that's right. Same with the Senate race. Democrats have an advantage at the moment. But that can all change as, as things heat up. All right, cool. Well, thank you guys so much for breaking down this poll for us. Um, I'm sure we'll have a lot more as we get closer, uh, the primary being in June. Keep up the good reporting, and I'm sure we'll have more stories soon. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, I am here with assistant editor Michelle Rendells. Also, always helps out edit the podcast. You're always behind the scenes, Michelle. At least recently you have been a lot. But it's good to have you back in front of the microphone talking. This week we're going to be talking about prisons. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joey. Yeah. So there was a Nevada Board of Prison Commissioners meeting in late January, and and there were a lot of concerns that were brought up during that meeting, mainly around staffing shortages. Can you kind of tell me a little bit about this meeting, what the grievances were, and who was at that meeting? Yeah, so the Board of Prison Commissioners is basically the governor, the attorney general, and the secretary of state. And they have these periodic meetings every couple of months where they hear reports from the officials who run the prison and take public comment about any issues that are affecting the Nevada prisons. So this recent meeting they had featured a lot of families concerned about their loved ones as they have been throughout the entire pandemic because of the possibility of COVID transmission, relatively low vaccination rates among prisoners and staff, and other issues such as delays getting packages of food and other important supplies to their loved ones. There was also a suspension in visitation recently as a way to try to stop the spread of COVID. So the families had a lot of concerns as they have had throughout the entire pandemic. But perhaps the most shocking thing was the extreme staffing shortage that the Nevada prisons are going through right now. Now, we've heard about staffing shortages in so many sectors of society right now. There's just less people participating in the labor force these days. And a lot of people are calling out sick because they get COVID. It's just so much more transmissible. So we heard the shocking statistic that literally one in four frontline correctional officer positions at this time are vacant. Wow. What is that compared to normal? Because I know like they're always talking about shortages at the prisons, but this is much, much higher, right? Yeah, they compared it to just before the pandemic kind of set in in Nevada. And they were having a 9% shortage at that time, a 9% vacancy rate. So less than one in 10 positions was empty. So really, we're talking about more than double the vacancy rate that we saw right before the pandemic. Prisons notoriously do have trouble staffing for a number of reasons. First of all, it is sometimes viewed as a less prestigious role than, say, a local police officer. Those jobs are often a lot better paid. You have to be a little older to even get into them. You take more time in the academy. There's just a level of prestige that's reflected in the pay that tends to favor these local government police agencies. It's also the fact that these are in rural areas almost all the time. I think the closest prison to an urban area would have to be Florence McClure Women's Prison, which is kind of in the outskirts of Las Vegas, but a lot of these are in Lovelock or Ely. You have to find people that are willing to either commute or live in the rural areas, and the rural areas are facing their own challenges with housing, and then they have to compete for workers against mines and other really well-paid jobs. So this has been a problem as long as I have been covering the situation at Nevada prisons. They've always called it critical staffing shortage, but I think seeing that one in four positions are empty really underscores that this time it really is extreme. What are some of the solutions that that have been proposed to deal with the situation? Because obviously, like, it is a bit of a crisis. They talked a lot about what they're doing to try to recruit people to these jobs. 
that means posting on social media and going to job boards and really trying to get the idea of being a correctional officer into people's heads so that they might look towards it. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure in a, in a labor climate that is what it is right now, they're really facing some serious headwinds for things they can't change. They can't just wholesale move one of these prisons overnight into a more populated urban area. The other thing is the legislature is not meeting right now, even if they wanted to raise pay to kind of keep up with what we're seeing inflation wise. I mean, it's another year at least. Well, and that was one thing that was brought up at the meeting was a special session. Is there any chance of a special session happening to address these issues? I asked Governor Steve Sisolak, who's a member of that board, about what he heard at that meeting and about the calls for taking action in some dramatic way to try to fill these vacancies. They sent me back kind of a basic statement saying they are always working on the issues, but there was nothing specifically answering the question of whether there would be a special session. People call for special sessions a lot, and it's pretty rare they will actually call a special session to deal with this issue. So I get the feeling that they're just going to try to ride it out and hope things get better and hope that they stay the course. But another thing we're looking at is this vaccine mandate. Very controversial. Correctional officers were previously subject to that until it was repealed in December. And the Department of Corrections wants to move forward with terminating people who are just not getting their vaccine and have been warned and have been reprimanded. But it's kind of unknown. Is that going to cause a mass resignation? Is that going to create an even more dire staffing situation? The Department of Corrections says that they are aware of this, they're seeing this, and they're ready for it. But what that really looks like on the ground really kind of remains to be seen. And I was going to ask, when you are looking on the ground, when you have staffing shortages this bad, what what, what is that looking like? What what are the what are the dangers that that could cause for both prisoners, prison staff? Well, one of the things that's kind of manifesting itself was they were desperate for people to even run the commissary, which is the little store that operates inside of the prison and really supplements the basic supplies that are supplied to the prisoners. But of course, one of the biggest concerns is just sheer safety. Because if you have only one officer patrolling the yard and some prisoners get together and want to gang up on that person or have some sort of a riot, that's a lot easier when there's so few staff. Some of these staff have really been talking about how they're very nervous that something really bad is going to happen just because they're short-staffed and the prison population knows that too. Are there any federal COVID relief funds that are going to help solve this problem? That was definitely something that folks called for during that meeting is please use some of the billions of dollars that the state is getting from the federal government and use that towards retention bonuses and things like that. I have not specifically seen that there is a movement towards that. Now, you recall some sectors of public workers have had that. One example that I can think of is the Clark County School District. They get several hundred dollars or maybe even up to a couple thousand dollars of a bonus that's kind of derived from federal funds. But yeah, I don't think when I asked the governor about this, that there's a specific plan to put a significant amount of money towards raising these salaries. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up the interview? One of the other ways that the prisons are trying to make ends meet, really, is just having their correctional officers work overtime. But these officers are saying, at some point I'm working 72 hours a week. I have no life. I'm absolutely burnt out. I'm not at my best when I'm at work because I'm so tired. So the prisons have always leaned heavily on overtime. 
and just as they're dealing with chronic staffing issues. So the concern is really that folks are going to be physically ill because of the burnout or just decide they can't handle this anymore and they're moving along. So they were begging for help of the leaders of the state to try to bring some relief and really bring these overtime numbers back into more normal range. I am here with our environmental reporter, Daniel Rothberg. Daniel, how's it going? It's going well. How are you? Doing well. And so you've been reporting on Thacker Pass for, my God, I feel like it's forever now. <laughs> I feel like I'm always, we're always hearing about Thacker Pass and it's always evolving. It's a very interesting situation. It's a lithium mine or a potential lithium mine out in rural Nevada. And it's pretty controversial. There's been a lawsuits and, and protests around it. So can you explain to me a little bit about what Thacker Pass is and, and why it's so controversial? Yeah, Thacker Pass is right on the Nevada-Oregon border north of Winnemucca. And the mine itself would go in the base of the Montana mountains in an area known as Thacker Pass. That's why it's called the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine Project. There's been uh, mining in the Montana mountains in the past, and there's been exploration. But the area itself where Thacker Pass would go is used for other purposes, cattle grazing and things like that, and has a good amount of sagebrush and wildlife habitat and and things like that. Uh, Definitely would bring sort of a new disturbance to the area. The company has worked to mitigate some of those impacts, but that's where a lot of the environmental groups and local ranchers, some some people in the rancher community have raised some concerns of, about the mine's presence. And, and why lithium? I, I mean, that's something that I hear about too. When we're talking about mining, lithium is kind of a, a big word I hear about a lot. Why is lithium so important to us right now? Demand for lithium is really being driven by the shift to electric vehicles and global economies or economies around the world have committed to decarbonizing and to moving away from fossil fuel emissions. And in order to do that, most plans include a robust buildup of electric vehicles. And those electric vehicles run on batteries that include lithium. And there's a need for a lot more lithium. If you look at some of the estimates from the International Energy Agency and other authorities, there's a need for a lot more lithium to meet that demand for electric vehicles. Lithium is also included in other forms of batteries that are probably going to be needed for decarbonizing the economy. So so that's really why people are eyeing lithium and looking at this mine, which is said to be on the largest known lithium deposit in the United States. Wow. And, And how is lithium mined? Is it similar to gold? Just from a technical standpoint, I'm curious. This mine would be set up different from a lot of the large gold mines that are in Nevada. But to answer your question, lithium itself can be mined in a variety of different ways and is mined in a variety of different ways. To give you a sense of the economy around lithium, Australia and I believe China and South America, Chile are some of the bigger lithium producers in the world. The United States has one active lithium operation and that's in Nevada at Silver Peak. The way that that operation works is the extraction is done largely through evaporation. So brine that includes lithium is pumped and placed in evaporation ponds. 
This is also how lithium is mined in South America, and it has a huge environmental footprint. If you think about it from a bird's eye view, you have these gigantic evaporation ponds, and it leads to all sorts of hydrological impacts and other impacts on wildlife, birds, for instance. So that's one way that lithium is mined conventionally through evaporation. There, there are other technologies that are looking at other options with brine, like direct lithium extraction, which would reduce the amount of water that's consumed in the process significantly. But those technologies are sort of still in development. Lithium is also mined through open pit mines, like you mentioned gold mining, like you, you would think about with a more traditional mine. And that's what this mine would look like in Thacker Pass. The environmental impact needs a lot of water and there's a lot of different kind of complicated things around it. There's a lawsuit from a lot of different parties. It's been going on for, for over a year now. Who, who are the people that are opposing this mine and, and what are the arguments against it? Yeah, there are two separate lawsuits that were filed shortly after the federal government approved the permit for this project. One of the lawsuits is filed by a local rancher, Ed Bartell, who grazes in that area around Thacker Pass. And he had a lot of concerns about water. And he also had a lot of concerns about he's made investments in species recovery and how those species might be affected by the mine activity and, and different groundwater pumping regimes in that basin. Another lawsuit was filed by four environmental groups. These, these lawsuits overlap in a lot of their concerns. And in fact, they've been consolidated now into one court docket. But the, the second lawsuit talks about this project being rushed at the end of the Trump administration, the environmental review being rushed, and federal land managers not uh, meeting their legal obligation to adequately consider the impacts on greater sage grouse and then also uh, migration for different types of species. So, so that's one concern, even if there isn't disturbance in that exact area, how noise and other types of activity in the area could affect this wildlife. Later, after the lawsuits were filed, two Native American tribes, the Burns Paiute tribe and the Reno Sparks Indian Colony joined as interveners, plaintiff interveners in the lawsuit, and the people of Red Mountain, a group of tribal elders and tribal members from the Fort McDermott Paiute and Shoshone tribe also joined in the lawsuit. And, and so and it's been going on for a year now. How has it changed over the year? How has it progressed? So, so the lawsuit was filed about a year ago. Initially, it had asked for the judge, a federal court judge, to consider a preliminary injunction, which basically would have put a stop until the judge ruled on the specific arguments about the environmental review and the concerns raised. The judge did not issue a preliminary injunction. However, she committed to ruling on the merits of the case before mine construction began. In that, you can read that the court is taking seriously this case and is going to review it before construction begins. At least that is what the judge has indicated in court. It also means that the judge did not enjoin preliminary mine work, and the mine is required under federal law to do a cultural archaeological survey of the area to look for artifacts and things like that. And she also drew, as I mentioned in my article this week, a distinction between the impacts of the cultural survey and the impact of the project, which are much larger and more significant in the area. Who is the company? What company is trying to is trying to do this this mine? The the lawsuits are against the Bureau of Land Management, which is the mm -hmm. federal 
agency that permitted the mine. The company is an intervener and they might be named as a defendant, but it is important to make that distinction that this is the federal government that's involved in this lawsuit. The company that is developing this project is is Lithium Americas and they have developed other projects. The company has throughout this process, I think everybody that has expressed concerns has talked about how COVID played a role in and made it more difficult to do this permitting process because it was harder to have meetings in person. The company says it is trying to mitigate some of these concerns. Some of the environmental groups say that some of some of these concerns can't be mitigated, that this mine is going to have impacts. But there are some concerns from community members that that can potentially be mitigated when it comes to increased traffic, when it comes to capacity issues for a local school, for example. The company has talked about actually relocating, paying for a new school. So, so the company has been quite active in working with the community. They're working with the Fort McDermott, Paiute, and Shoshone tribe, as they've mentioned, I believe, in some of their newsletters. The company had more claims in the Montana mountains at higher elevations with more sensitive habitat, and they have committed to not mining those claims, which I think is a commitment that a lot of sportsman groups were glad to hear, but still have some concerns about the project. There, there are other companies, though, that are looking at mining in the Montana mountains. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and explaining this, this complicated situation. I'm sure it'll keep going, and I'm sure you'll have more reporting on it. You have a newsletter in the environment, which comes out on Thursdays, which you can subscribe to. So, Daniel, thanks. Thanks, Joey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sean Galanka, Humberto Sanchez, Michelle Rundells, and Daniel Rothberg for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Michelle Rundells, Riley Snyder, and Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and email us with questions, comments, concerns, methods on banishing a demon from your computer so it'll stop trying to type John Ralston is always right whenever you try to tweet, or whatever else is on your mind at joey at thenvindy.com or jacob at thenvindy.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.